Hey there, welcome to LiveWire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. This week on the show, we are going to broaden our horizons. First up, we're going to be talking to food writer Cecily Wong about her book, Gastro Obscura, which features fascinating food stories from all over the world, including psychedelic honey that was once used as a weapon, and also the time that they offered champagne as an energy drink to the people running the 1908 London Olympic Marathon. Then we're going to talk to Grammy Award nominee Andrew Bird about how he balances painful shyness with also being a public figure and how he used whistling as a security blanket when he was acting in the TV show Fargo. Then he's going to play a song from his new album Inside Problems. This version, though, you will only hear here on Livewire. So that is the plan. Thanks for heading out on this adventure with us. It all gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. How you doing? I'm doing well. Um, I'm not sure if we're going to get through this broadcast because I'm in my home studio and this cat that I got is trying to chew through the internet cable. Not a fan of public radio. (laughs) If the show goes down, I need you to just like handle it from your end. Are you ready to play a little station location identification examination? I am. Okay. We're talking about food on the show this week with Cecily Wong. So I wanted to ask you about a food-related place. Of course, this is where I quiz Elena about somewhere in the world where Livewire is on the radio, and she tries to guess where I'm talking about. Now, this place has a population of just over 5,000 people, but approximately 1 million people visit a cheese factory located in this place every year. Is it Tillamook, Oregon? It is exactly Tillamook, Oregon. The only cheese factory I know. (laughs) I know, right? KTMK Radio is where folks can hear us in Tillamook. I've actually done that tour. Yeah, me too. really, really fun. It's a real ace in the hole when you have people visit and you mm-hmm. say you want to go to the cheese factory and they look right. at you like, oh, you poor thing. That's the only fun thing in your region. And every single time they're like, oh, wow, that was the best part of the trip. Absolutely. Where else could you see a cheese factory located less than 10 miles from the ocean? I feel like yeah. the cheese factors are usually much more landlocked with their geography. And good ice cream, too. Yeah, absolutely. Yum. All right. Shout out to everyone listening on KTMK in Tillamook. Oregon. All right, Elena, should we get on with the show? Let's do it. All right, take it away. (laughs) 
from PRX, it's Livewire. This week, writer Cecily Wong. We as Americans are doing some of the most bizarre stuff with food. Like, you know, if you apply a lens from another country, I mean, the amount of cheese that we eat is really grotesque. Like, people, people find that very, very strange. With music by Andrew Bird. I'm interested in things that might tell us what we're made of. I think they just make nice metaphors for what it is to be human. And our fabulous house band. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now, the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank! Thank you so much, Elena Passarello. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in from all over the country, including in Tillamook, Oregon, which now I'm really hungry. Like, as Mm -hmm. soon as we're done with the show, I'm beelining it for a grilled cheese sandwich. Dairy time. Um, We asked the Livewire listeners a question, as we do each week. This week, we asked, what's a yum for you that's a yuck for most other people. In other words, what's something you like that a lot of other people seem to not be fans of? Uh, we are going to hear those responses coming up in a bit. First, though, of course, it's time for the best news we heard all week. This, of course, our little reminder at the top of the program that there is some good news happening out there in the world. Elena, what's the best news you heard all week? I've realized something in our pursuit of best news about myself. Well, several okay. things, actually. One of the things that I've learned is that I love graduation news. <laughs> is that because of your association with academia? Maybe. You know, this year, by the way, I'm doing the live commentary for the streaming of my university's graduation, like the Macy's Day Parade. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, you're like the Katie Couric. Yeah, of Al Roker. The- Whoa. Okay, sure. Uh, no. Are they going to let you ride around a little go-kart with goggles on? Because that's what Al was doing last year. <laughs> I wish. I think I'm just going to be in a studio just saying things like, congratulations, but I can't wait. Yeah. It's just a, almost an entirely positive day for people. Like It's just a day of success, which is so cool. And speaking of days of success, one of the many graduates that are celebrating this year is Sarah Merrill, who graduated this month from the Mayo Clinic Alex School of Medicine. She got her MD. She's moving on to do residency in Indiana next month. And, you know, prior to this degree, she was pre-med. She got her pre-med degree at Dartmouth. But what's interesting is she got that pre-med degree 20 years ago. Whoa. That's a pretty big gap year. I believe that's a gap decades. Yeah. That's that's like when you go to the Peace Corps and you don't come back. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But instead of being in the Peace Corps, she's spent the past 20 years raising nine children. Whoa. She is a mother of nine who just got her MD. Uh, (laughs) That is incredible. I know. When she started med school, her youngest child was two years old and her eldest child was 14 and now they're eight and 20. So it wasn't even like everybody had went away to college or anything. Like she was still- Still actively parenting whilst in med school at the Mayo Clinic. Yeah. Can you imagine? No, I can't. And the, the article that I read tells a wonderful story of just this huge ocean, a village of support that allowed this obvious- Obviously brilliant, accomplished woman to follow her dreams and make things happen and put herself into a position where she can do great work. The family voted and agreed that it was a good idea. I guess the two-year-old voted and they all relocated to wow, Arizona. Wow, if only our government functioned as effectively as this family. I know. 
Um, her husband switched his work situation so he could work remotely. Her mother moved down to Arizona to help take care of the nine kids. And the kids would do things like feature homework parties. So they'd plan like a homework party where mom and then the kids that had homework that night would get together and study and finish their assignments. And she said that she really appreciated going to med school more at 34, 35 years old, taking, you know, her MCATs while her children were climbing all over her and things like that. And she also thinks that she brought, this is something that I I think is really cool. She brought a lot of life skills to the Mm -hmm. process of things like going to med school and especially residency. When she had her rotation in the OBGYN wing, I mean, she brought a lot of uh, personal knowledge. (laughs) Lived experience. (laughs) Yeah. Nine lived experiences. And the other cool thing is that by the time she graduated, there were three moms getting their MDs from that same program. So I'm all for the idea of a non-traditional college experience. I think it makes uh, for a better experience for everybody. And I'm just gobsmacked. I can barely do my job with three cats. I don't know how I would become (laughs) a medical doctor with three times as many kids. (laughs) <laughs> if you took the MCATs, it would literally just be you trying to figure out what's going on with your cats. Yeah, it would be the MY cats, the MY cats. <laughs> Speaking of pets, the best news that I found out about this week uh, comes to us from Utah, where there is this great organization called Rough Haven Crisis Sheltering. Now, Rough is R-U-F-F. Uh-oh. Like the sound that a dog might make, because <laughs> what they do there is they offer free short-term housing for pets while their owners are going through difficulties, whether it's experiencing homelessness or escaping a domestic violence situation or substance use disorder, which is a really big one, where people are dealing with uh, addiction, but something that keeps a lot of people from seeking treatment is what's gonna happen to their pets. Yeah, It's a really real concern. And so a lot of people stay really stuck in a place that's not good for them because of just concern about their animals. Well, that was why they founded this Rough Haven Crisis Sheltering, where basically what happens is uh, you send in uh, your information if you're somebody who's going through a difficult time. They then match your pet with a foster home, and then you can check on your pet once a week via text. Also, the uh, people that are fostering the animals will send the uh, owners photos and videos. Sometimes they'll have play dates where the person who's dealing with whatever it is they're dealing with, they go to like a dog park and they get to hang out with their dog. Some people get to even do this every day if they want to, which I would imagine also is incredibly sort of comforting if if you're going through a really difficult period and you're really trying to make some positive changes in your life, you can still go visit your animal, right? Yeah, that, I bet that helps a lot. I thought this was kind of amazing. So since Rough Haven Crisis Sheltering opened back in uh, June of 2020, they've helped 320 families and about 500 animals. Oh. This was from um, Christina Pulsifer, who is the executive director of Rough Haven. She said, a lot of times owners worry that their pets are going to forget about them during the period of time that they're gone but the pets never forget their person. Never. The reunions are why we do this. And we have many people who have been clients that volunteer with us now or foster for us. So a lot of people who've been through the program and received the services are now volunteers or they're fostering animals for other people who are going through difficult circumstances. Oh, that's wonderful. I would, I would totally share that fear, by the way. You know, yeah. I just got this kitten and I feel like if I'm away from her for three days, I'm going to come back and she's going to be like, who are you? No. But the <laughs> amount of her trying to crawl up my leg, even as we do the broadcast, tells me she remembers vividly who I am. What? I actually fostered a, a dog of my own. Like I moved to Los Angeles once and I had this very active 
two-year-old boxer. And I lived in an apartment where you couldn't have a dog while I was looking for something more permanent. And some very nice person in Eagle Rock, California, fostered the dog for me for like three months. And I would go visit on weekends. Luckily, I wasn't experiencing homelessness or anything like that. But like, I was kind of surprised when the person gave me my dog back. <laughs> I went back out there after three months. I thought she was going to say, yeah, the dog ran away. We haven't seen it. So uh, I'll see you later. Because like, what a great, what an open-hearted person you'd have to be to foster a pet for someone else. Just take great care of that animal and then just give them back when the person's ready. That's a really amazing, special kind of person in their own right. Yeah. And I think, you know, sometimes that works out really well for the fosters too. People who mm-hmm. travel a lot and can't have like a lifetime dog, but want that companionship and want to help or want to cat for just a little bit of time that can be kind of kind of a cool way to get to take care of a pet on their end yeah. too well as i think about it the look in the eyes of this woman who had been fostering my highly active boxer <laughs> named flea was Sweet. not one of sadness but one of relief maybe she was ready for me to take the dog back all right that's the best news that we've heard this week And if you would like to get even more good news in your week, head over to the LiveWire podcast feed where we actually have a new podcast out of just the best news that we heard all week with lots of positivity to help uh, brighten up your day. It comes out every Wednesday, so please check it out wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's welcome our first guest over to the show. She has searched the planet in pursuit of the most incredible ingredients, food adventures, and edible wonders from all seven continents, which, yes, includes Antarctica, where she can tell you where the best barbecue prawns are. I've always wondered that myself. Uh, the result of all this is the beautiful New York Times bestseller, Gastro Obscura, an explorer's guide to food. It is truly a feast uh, for the eyes and the mind. So let's take a listen to this. It's our conversation with Cecily Wong, recorded in April at the Alberta Rose Theater here in Portland. Take a listen. Hi, Cecily. Hello, hello. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. You were born in Hawaii, but uh, you grew up in Oregon. How adventurous were you as an eater as a kid in Eugene, Oregon? You know, I I think that adventurous eating has really come a long way since I was a a kid growing up in Eugene, Oregon. Um, As a kid from Hawaii, I ate a lot of foods that other people didn't eat and didn't recognize. Mm. And so for me, it was completely normal. And for other people, it was kind of more bizarre. Mm. So I don't know. I think I, I think I got like my sea legs for eating strange things as I traveled, as I moved to New York and got exposed to a lot more things. But now, I mean, I'll eat anything, which is <laughs> yeah. part of, yeah. I'm wondering, this, this book is an outgrowth of the Gastro Obscura website, which is really fascinating. But I'm wondering how you keep both that website and this book from just becoming get a load of what people eat. Mm. For sure. Yeah. I mean, that was one of our our main goals in writing this book, launching this website, is that there was no yuck factor when when choosing. All All, you know, all yums are like ooze, you know, (laughs) like what what is that? So yeah, I mean there's you know, you think you think like weird foods, you think bugs, you think organs, you know, things like that. And, you know, they're just foods. Mm-hmm. Like, these are, these are things that we are not super familiar with. But, like, 
I, um, I was just down at South by Southwest and I met this amazing bug chef. And I think that we're all going to be eating bugs oh, yeah. really soon. I ate so many bugs on my jog today. <laughs> exactly. A generation of gnats. <laughs> what do you think? Uh, could have used some salt. Mm -hmm. But right, like the, the idea being that there's a lot of food that seems odd or surprising to us, but it's just something that someone's eating somewhere because it's the food that's available to them. They enjoy it. And it's really easy to other it or be sort of, quote unquote, grossed out by stuff. But obviously that's not the goal of any of this stuff that you guys are doing. Totally. And, and what we found is that we, we as Americans are doing some of the most bizarre stuff with food. <laughs> like if, if, you know, if you apply a, a lens from another country, I mean, the amount of cheese that we eat is really mm -hmm. grotesque. Like people, <laughs> people find that very, very strange. This is Livewire from PRX. We're listening to a conversation we had with Gastro Obscura writer Cecily Wong. We've got to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere because we will be right back. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of Livewire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners uh, is what keeps the lights on over at Livewire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of. I'm probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork mm -hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Yes. Point is, we... We are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content. Uh, and, Elena, uh, one more thing that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're <laughs> here to talk about is you keeping Livewire going. So head on over to livewireradio.org to see the various member levels. It does not matter how much you are giving every month to Livewire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Welcome back to Livewire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank, here with Elena Passarello. We're listening to a conversation that we had with Gastro Obscura writer Cecily Wong in front of a live audience at the Alberta Rose Theater here in Portland. We recorded this earlier this year. Take a listen. I was wondering about the process of, of what you decided to put into the book because there's all these posts on the website and I guess a ton of information that you then had to kind of sort through, prioritize. How did you decide what was in and what was out? Yeah, so the process took about four years. It was, it was a heavy lift. And it wasn't, it wasn't just me. I have a co-author, Dylan Thuris. Um, and then we have a whole edit team. And so it's basically their entire job just to kind of scour the, the earth and the internet for the you know, most obscure things they can find. And then um, Atlas Obscure, if you're familiar with the website, has this massive community of users who are super active and they, they write in 
literally every day saying, I'm, I ate this, it's amazing, check it out, I'm from here, this is what you have to eat. And so we just got this flood of tips every day and we just, we sorted through them and we just kind of jumped down dozens of rabbit holes every day and we had a lot of latitude to kind of put in whatever we found most fascinating. And that was the kind of core principle was like, if it's fascinating to you, it can go in the book. If it's fascinating, uh, we were... So I'm, a, I'm actually a, mostly a novelist, and I grew up in a food family. My parents own restaurants. Um, I've always been a very enthusiastic eater. And so they wanted to put together a book that was narrative about storytelling behind food, mm-hmm. um, not just about, you know, look at this crazy food that you've never seen before. And so what we were really looking for was stories behind these foods. And so you'll mm-hmm. also find in this book that there are foods that you know about that have these amazing histories that you don't know about. Benny Wafers. I, I grew up in South Carolina, and I, I always knew what Benny Wafers were, but I thought they were named after some guy named Benny. But thanks to your book, I now know that Benny is a Bantu word that means sesame seeds, and they're sesame seeds wafers because it's a, one of the many West African traditions that made its way into South Carolina cooking. Bam. Amazing. Exactly. So amazing. There you go. Yeah. I tell this story all the time about the pineapple. I'm, I'm obsessed with the history of the pineapple. Basically, when it first came over to, to England, it was like this big hit with the super rich because they didn't have any sugary fruits. They were really into this newfangled fruit. And so it became this kind of status symbol. Mm. And in, in like the 17th century, there was this thriving pineapple rental business because they were so expensive. You could actually you could rent a pineapple for a party and then just display it. Um, and then you'd have to give it back. And then the person would sell it to someone who was like way richer than you were and could like afford to eat it. I'm just leasing this. Yeah. yeah. Um, someday I'll be able to. Pineapple timeshare. I mean, it, I think it, an 18th century pineapple was like, $8,000. Like these were, these were status. Wow. Yeah. I want to actually kind of jump into some of the things in the book, um, including one that I know is kind of near and dear to your heart. What's spam jam? The spam jam. Yeah. So it's, it's what it sounds like you're jamming with spam. It's, <laughs> it's like the biggest, craziest spam party. And, and there are multiple. As opposed to the low key spam parties, yeah. the kind of sedate ones. You would ones. be surprised. <laughs> there are more spam parties than you, than you think there would be. But this one's big. This one, um, it's 35,000 people. They come specifically to celebrate spam. It's in Hawaii. Hawaii is where I'm from. And Hawaiians actually eat the most spam in the world. It's like seven cans per person every year, which is oh, it's a lot of spam. Are you keeping your end of that bargain up? Would you say you put down about seven cans a year? That's kind of a lot. Um, I mean, I, I could, <laughs> you know, like if, if pressed, I could right. definitely do it. Um, so you eat spam in just like every variety, spam fries, yeah, macadamia nuts with powdered spam. There's spam pastries. Like anything you can imagine, they're putting spam in it. And then it's just like, it's along this like very fancy street in Hawaii, which I find so wonderful. Spam in Hawaii, there's like nothing to be ashamed of. There's like sure. spam pride. This is like fancy <laughs> meat. Whereas when I moved here, spam, it, it was like, came as a huge shock to me that like spam was not a cool meat. Um, and so it's my people are, yeah. are in Hawaii just, you know, like getting after spam. Do you have yeah. a favorite kind of preparation? Like for folks that have, have not enjoyed spam properly, is there a way to, to prepare it? There's absolutely a way to What's prepare it. What's your favorite? It. Okay, so the first thing that you have to remember about spam is that it is a canned meat. You cannot just take it out of the can and eat it. No one's going to like that. So you have, to, you have to slice it and you have to fry it. You have to get some texture on there. So I think the gateway drug to spam is probably 
either spam fried rice or spam musubis. Mm-hmm. There's actually a lot of spam musubis in Portland, which I find just absolutely wonderful. Um, but it's like a, it's like a spam sushi. It's rice, seared spam, usually a teriyaki sauce, seaweed. Mm. Delicious. Yeah, I have to say good. the first time I had spam, it was fried, and I was like, I had heard all these jokes growing up on the mainland. It was sort of a punchline. And then I had it fried up in some rice, and I was like, where has this been all my life? It's salty. <laughs> totally. It's, like, delicious. People are eating it wrong. Yeah. I'm really mm. glad we could have this conversation. Yeah. How mm. about miracle berries? I read about this, and I was like, this can't be a real thing. And then I heard you actually brought some. I brought some miracle berries. Okay, what oh. are miracle berries? They're a fruit that is native to West Africa. They kind of look like cranberries. They kind of taste like bland cranberries. Um, but basically, the miracle of these berries is that you eat them, you kind of coat your mouth with the juices, and then everything that should taste sour then tastes sweet. Whoa. So that's why I have That's some, some Wonka stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We call them tongue drugs. <laughs> um, and there's, this is the better one. There's another one, actually, that removes the sweetness from everything you eat, Aww. which is, ugh, why would you want that? Wow. Okay, so, so okay. can we try one yeah. of these? So um, take one of those. These are actually, these are freeze-dried. Thank you. And do you just like, uh, just chew it or chew suck it. on it? Or? It says to chew it for 30 seconds. Okay. And then the third instruction is enjoy new flavors. All right. Just take the mic for 30 seconds. It uh, looks so. like okay. a pomegranate. Uh, it tastes like popcorn at the bottom of the popcorn bucket. Mm-hmm. You know, just like the, like the oh, kernels. Yeah. It's like kind of the one that'll go up like go on your, your back teeth and your gums mm-hmm. and you're working on it for like two weeks. Okay, what do you think, Cecily? Okay. I've masticated All right. it. Okay. Take your so lemon. Now, okay, so now we've got a lemon. So we have, uh, for those uh, listening at home, we've chewed up a, a miracle berry. Mm. And, uh, and I don't trust the miracle berry. I'm afraid <laughs> to eat this lemon. Give it a go. You just bite right into the lemon. This is supposed to make the lemon taste sweet. Sweeter. <laughs> Not a miracle. <laughs> Like a lot of miracles, I, I think it depends on who the miracle is being done on. Mm. <laughs> no, it does. It tastes like lemonade. It is. Yeah, it's definitely. Like lemonade. Did you need more miracle? Maybe a, like a little eat? bit more miracle, but I can see the effect that it's having. <laughs> no, I got it. I'm there. Speaking of um, hallucinogenic properties, can we talk about <laughs> mad honey? By the way, uh, this is Livewire Radio, allegedly. Uh, <laughs> We're talking to Cecily Wong, the co-author of the Gastro Obscura book, A Food Adventurer's Guide. Um, Let's talk about mad honey from Turkey. This is a wild story. Yes. So mad honey from Turkey, it's called Deli Ball. This is something that only grows on these like high mountains that surround the Black Sea. Um, The rhododendron grows on these mountains and then the bees eat the flowers and basically the special flower contains a special toxin called grayonotoxin. And... It makes honey psychedelic, essentially. It, it causes hallucinations. It causes paralysis. In smaller doses, it's taken as folk medicine. And so it can treat more minor things, diabetes, hypertension, stuff like that. But if you eat too much, which is actually not even that much, it's like a tablespoon, that's when things get kind of wacky. Um, and we know this partly because of this amazing war story from 67 B.C., Emperor Pompey and the Romans were invading what is now Turkey, and King Mithridates and his men were trying to fend them off, and then they had this, like, 
great idea, which was that the Romans were going to be tired and hungry and they should just like place these mad honeycombs yeah. in their path. And so, so they, they did. left out basically spiked the, honey, the LSD honey. Absolutely. So that the Romans would find it and be like free honey. I mean, genius, right? I mean, it yeah. worked. And so they, so they eat the honey and they lose control of all their limbs. They start hallucinating. They're all falling along the side of the road. And then Mithridates and his men, they come back and they just, they slay him. It's like one of the great sacks of history, and it's like honey-related death. Yeah, that's great. I don't, I don't want to die at war. At war. But if I had to, that's how I want to die. Mm-hmm. Just not high bad. as balls yeah. on honey. They probably didn't even know what's happening. Just yeah. lying by the side of the road, like vibing yeah. as my last thought. There are worse ways to go. Right? Yeah. yeah. Let's talk about. Cornmeal mush entrapment competition in South Carolina, in Elena's old stomps of South Carolina. Oh, yeah. Okay, so South Carolina, there's this small town called St. George. I think there's about 2,000 people, um, but they're like big claim to fame is that they eat the most grits per capita um, mm. out of anyone in the world. And so to celebrate this vast accomplishment, they have the grits rolling festival. And so it's a competition. They fill a kiddie pool with 3,000 pounds of prepared grits. Um, and they have a competition to see how, how many pounds of grits you can trap on your body. Um, <laughs> you have 10 seconds to roll in this kiddie pool and collect it on your body. And so we could have had it all yeah. <laughs> rolling in the grits. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> I've had a lot of miracle berries. Okay. <laughs> I have, I can't speak for what's going to happen for the rest of the program. (laughs) So they're trying to balance as much grits as possible on their physical body. Yes. And so over the years, they've kind of come up with new styles Mm. of um, grit entrapment clothing. (laughs) And so they'll have... Exactly. Oh, so you can put it in your pockets and things. Maternity pants. You can put it in your pockets. Yeah, they'll like duct tape their sweatpants at the ankle. Cargo shorts. fall through. Cargo shorts. I don't know if that's worth your time. (laughs) Okay. But, you know, whatever. They rarely are. Yeah. (laughs) Just as a fashion. (laughs) Elena, as a Southerner, what's your take on grits? And also, is there a preparation of grits that you find particularly tasty? Uh, never instant. And for me, never sweet. Okay. I like a savory grit. I'm a butter and salt grits purist. Um, and I like a lumpy grit. What about, what about you, Cecily? Aww. What's your grit pr- pr- portfolio? <laughs> your grit profile. I, your grit profile. I think it's polenta. Is that blasphemy? No. I mean, polenta is Italian grits. Yeah, okay. As a southerner yeah. with the last name Passarello, I think I can just sort <laughs> of decree that it's okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, what about uh, champagne? As an energy drink, where is this going on? I actually asked to talk about this because I <laughs> love talking about this. Um, yeah, I just think it's wild that up until like the 1980s, they were giving perf- like endurance athletes alcohol uh-huh. to to hydrate them. They thought that it hydrated them as well as water, if not better. Um, and so this is like on full display at the 1908 London Olympic Marathon. Like 57 runners start out and only half of them make it to the finish line because they're all so drunk. Um, and it's just, it's, it's so bonkers. Like there's this front runner, it's this young Canadian runner. He's going to win. Everyone knows he's going to win. And then like mile 17, he accepts champagne because he's got like a cramp. And of course he, he's, he's out. He falls down, he's out. And then the next person like takes the lead. He's got like this epic four mile lead. He should win. And then he also is like, okay, champagne. And then he's out. Um, and then the winner is this Italian pastry chef. He um, had a ton of champagne 
And in the last mile, he's running the wrong direction. (laughs) He has his heart massaged by a medic, and he's actually helped across the finish line by a doctor. Um, And so that led to a redistribution of the medals, because uh, that's not allowed, I guess, in the Olympics. Um, And so... Yeah, it's wild. The, the 1924 Paris Games, they stocked their rehydration stations with wine. Wow. <laughs> Beautiful. That's gorgeous. Yeah. <laughs> I would run more marathons. There's actually a marathon for you. There's one in the wine region of Medoc in France. You run a marathon, classic marathon, but you stop, I think, 23 times to drink a glass of wine. <laughs> I would yeah. win that. The Venn diagram overlap of being... Kind of okay at running and really okay at wine drinking. That's me. Cecily Wong, everyone. The book is Gastro Scurro. Thank you. That was Cecily Wong right here on Livewire. Her book, Gastro Obscura, A Food Adventurer's Guide, is available now. Also, Cecily has a forthcoming novel. It's coming out this summer called Kaleidoscope. It's getting fantastic reviews, so make sure you check that out as well. Hey, special thanks this episode to Arvid Hokanson of Mercer Island, Washington. Hey, Arvid. And Kathleen Kinder of Portland, Oregon. Hi there, Kathleen. Arvid and Kathleen are part of the Livewire member community, and they're generously supporting us with a donation each month, which we are extremely thankful for. Because it's how we're able to keep doing the show week in and week out. So thanks again to Kathleen and Arvid for keeping Live Wire going. This is Live Wire. Of course, as we do each week, we asked our listeners a question inspired by Cecily Wong's very cool book about food from all over the world. Uh, we asked the live of our listeners, what is a yum for you that is a yuck for most other people? Like, what is something that you like that you commonly find other people maybe don't like as much as you do? Elaine has been collecting up those responses. What are people telling you? What do you think about this one from Dana? <laughs> Dana's yum that everybody else yucks is my dog licking my feet. Hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> people yuck that? You like it too? Oh my gosh, it was great. I felt like, you know how you can go to one of those places and get a pedicure where the fish... The fish, yeah. The fish munch on your feet. That was like the low-rent version of that. My dog Rudy would just go to town. I was into it. Whenever I I eat like a little thing of yogurt, when I'm done, (laughs) there's that residual yogurt around the plastic Uh container and I run my finger around it and my cats lick it off my finger and I do love their little sandpapery tongues. Absolutely. These dogs are living with us for free. Put them to work. Get them on a pedicure uh, project. All right, what's something else that somebody likes that most people don't like? Highly controversial answer from Mel. Mel's yum is going to the dentist because, quote, it's like a tooth massage. Whoa. What kind of dentist is this, Mel? (laughs) I don't know if they're doing a good job or not. Yeah. Actually, I don't know. I mean, maybe the reason we fear the dentist is because they go so hard on the teeth. Maybe a little bit of... uh gentleness wouldn't be the worst thing. I mean, I assume it has to be a somewhat unpleasant experience, but maybe I'm just not going to the right folks. Or maybe like if you have really great teeth, they just uh-huh. rub your gums and send you home. I don't, I don't yeah. know. <laughs> I got three words for you. Sub gingival scaling. Oh, ouch. Yeah. yeah. I once went to the dentist and he just said, okay, first of all, this is a two-parter. I'm a very regular brusher of my teeth and flosser, I, I would have to say. But 
this was years ago, and the dentist said, okay, first of all, this is, we're not going to knock this out in one session. Oh, my God. And two, I'm going to actually like numb your teeth and gums because of the amount of cleaning that we are about to embark on. <sighs> it was like when they like power washed down Mount Rushmore or something. <laughs> they built scaffolding. It was a situation. <laughs> and I've never let it get that bad again, I'm happy to report. Did it reveal hidden carvings in your teeth that Gorzon no, Borlwich or whatever his name was? It, it, it did not, thankfully, but it was close to that. All right. What's something else that uh, one of our listeners really likes that is unusual? I actually share this yum with Karen. Karen's <laughs> yum is, quote, my landline. I don't have I one have anymore, been, but I really want one back. I have been trying to get a landline now for years, like an... <laughs> Old school, in the kitchen, yeah. phone with a long cord that you go hide from your parents, but you go around the corner because you're asking someone on a date, but you don't want everyone in the household hearing mm-hmm. it. I really want that phone. And it's actually like, they don't even, a lot of places don't even have phone lines. If you have something like that, it's still coming out of your computer. It's still yeah. internet based. It's not a land, there's no land involved. Two, no, three summers ago, I was in Paris for a month and a half. And the place where I stayed not only had a landline, but the phone there was one of those hamburger phones from the eighties. <laughs> Remember those? <laughs> I, of course. I had nobody to call because I didn't speak French. I couldn't even really order a pizza. But I, I, I think I, ma- I managed to make one like like transportation involved like rental car phone call from the burger phone. The irony of you ordering a pizza while using a hamburger <laughs> phone also would have been <laughs> kind of weird. But anyway, okay. What's something else uh, that one of our listeners really likes that's kind of not the norm? Okay, uh, most of the responses that we got were food-oriented, just mm-hmm. kind of like the kinds of things that on TV a pregnant lady would order okay, her husband sure. the to The stereotype go get. of somebody going yeah. through hormonal stuff. It's hard to pick a favorite yum that uh, I certainly yuck among these okay. food entries, but this one's pretty, pretty up there. Cal uh, enjoys Kool-Aid powder mixed with potato chips. Oh, no Cal, thank you no. for me. <laughs> I mean, again, the terminology we're using, we don't want to yuck anyone's yum. We, you know, everyone gets to like what they like, but... That sounds that, dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I it's mean, okay. <laughs> I feel like potato chips in the current state of things are already like covered in so much flavor blasting dust and <laughs> flavor you know, blasting sodium and the caloric <laughs> vanishing point. Do you know about the caloric vanishing point? No. Do I this is this know? engineered thing with a lot of modern junk food where basically our tongues... Uh, are originally wired to kind of help tell us when we're full, when we've had Uh enough of a particular thing, but they've engineered a lot of this food now so that your tongue doesn't realize what the caloric vanishing point is. And so you can just kind of, I mean, if you've ever just mindlessly killed an entire sleeve of chips as I have, it's it's thanks to uh, some pretty engineered things. Meaning, I don't know if I personally would need Kool-Aid on top of that. Yeah, no, gosh, wow. I learned a lot of yucky things just now. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks to everyone who sent in a response to our question. We've got another question for next week's show, which we will reveal at the end of the program. Stick around for that. In the meantime, this is Livewire Radio. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Our next guest is a multi-instrumentalist and singer-songwriter who's been steadily releasing critically acclaimed albums since 1996. His genre-spanning music is known for its wistful melodies, its hyper-literate lyrics, it's virtuosic violin playing, and uh, also some really amazing whistling. His 2019 release, My Finest Work Yet, earned him a Grammy nomination for Best Folk Album. And his latest album, Inside Problems, just came out. 
Andrew Bird. Welcome back to Livewire. Good to be here. Uh, the title of the album is Inside Problems, um, but you're going on this tour this summer, which you're calling Outside Problems. Yeah. Is, is that basically like you're externalizing your odd thoughts to a bunch of people that are going to come watch you? Yeah, that's one, one way of putting it. It's also most of the, the shows are outside. I see. So there's a literal reason for that. But yeah, I also made an, an instrumental companion album that I often do that goes with the, the song album that's called Outside Problems because it was recorded outside. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, you launched this album with a kind of a short film that I was mm -hmm. watching on YouTube. And again, it's talking about inside problems versus outside problems. And you kept saying this line, I want to know what you think, but not really. Mm-hmm. But is that kind yeah. of how you feel? Uh, it's like the pretense of wanting to know what you think. Or, or when I play a show, I adopt a certain posture of like of a dialogue with the audience. But actually reading the suggestions in the box on the way out of the theater is not something I'm inclined to do. <laughs> it's just the, you know, just setting it up as if it's a dialogue or feeling like it's a dialogue is whole part of the songwriting process for me sometimes i'll try a song out before it's finished in front of an audience and i'll be like i don't know it could go this way or this way it's like uh i feel like a comedian when i'm doing that on stage it's like a shrug of the shoulders like i don't know what do you think folks you know you strike me as a as a fairly private person and as somebody who is not clamoring for the spotlight or attention, which is, I guess, ironic considering your line of work. But like, what is it like for you to be a person who is a public figure and who plays these shows and thousands of people come and kind of want to talk to you and have a piece of you? What's that like for you? It's a strange thing because ever since I was a little kid in school, I was painfully shy, what they called quiet. But as soon as I would come up in front of the class and give a book report or something, I would be completely self-possessed and comfortable. Hmm and at ease to the degree that it was kind of alarming to the teachers. <laughs> um, it's a strange thing, but I, I feel safe on stage. Hmm. Until I get on the stage, I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing. As soon as I get in front of the mic, I'm like, I know what to do. This is my job, you know. Uh, this is Livewire Radio. We're talking to Andrew Bird, uh, whose latest album is Inside Problems. Speaking of your career, it, it has been really varied over time with doing a lot of different things. I know that you're doing soundtrack stuff now and, and you also, uh, you acted in Fargo. You were great in that show. Were you an actor before that? No, I had never given it a thought. Um, Noah Hawley, who started the whole Fargo post Coen Brothers enterprise, um, saw me play a show in Austin and just cast me on the spot for the funeral director. And uh, he kind of had to reassure me that I, I was going to be okay and I wouldn't make a fool of myself. He knew that I had never done it before. And uh, what was cool is like I got there and all these amazing actors like Jesse Buckley and, you know, and I'm in the company of people that really know what they're doing and everyone just treated me like another actor, you know. Did you uh, ever like break out your violin or do something to demonstrate to them what you are really, really good at? Like kind of like, okay, maybe this is my first time acting, but check out this. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I was desperate for something, some sort of security blanket at some point. So in the script, it had me whistling. Right. Um, after I, you know, pay off the gangster 
and mm. think I've I've saved everybody. And so I'm pretty proud of myself and I'm walking the door whistling and dancing. And I was like, oh, thank God I can do something I know how to do. <laughs> but it got, it got sticky because um, I whistled something from Sisyphus and I, I, wasn't, I wasn't really allowed to do my own music. <laughs> so wait, there was a rights issue to a song that you had written. Yeah. And then they brought that up and I said, okay, I'll whistle some as if I'm just whistling a, like a jazz solo. Uh, of a tune so it's it's and even that was too much because i was inventing it myself so they're like can it just be camp town races or something you know something public domain anyway we we resolved it it was fine i don't think that that they were looking for me to showcase my whistling skills so much as just move the story along yeah this is livewire you're listening to a conversation that we recorded recently with andrew bird I'm Luke Burbank, by the way, here with Elena Passarello. Uh, we've got to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere because when we come back, we'll have more with Andrew, including a very special musical performance just for our show. So stay with us. This is LiveWire. LiveWire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal T this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. They make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream Earl Grey. Use the code LiveWire, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to LiveWire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank. We are talking to Andrew Bird. One of the things I love so much about your music is the intersection of science and mm. and your music. And you just have this really beautiful way of kind of posing a scientific principle or questioning something in the world of science um, in the midst of a song. I'm curious, do you, what's your relationship with like science? Do you have a formal background in that? Did you study that in college or something? No, not exactly. I really don't have any uh, science science background at all, but I like phenomena. My approach to science is like the big picture kind of crackpot theories. I'm interested in things that might tell us what we're made of, whether it be dark matter or uh, I'm trying to think of some other examples. There's a lot. I think it, they just make nice metaphors for what it is to be human. And when you're writing a song... I mean, are you reading an article in like Scientific American or the New York Times or wherever, and you see some sort of large principle about the universe or whatever? Do you like underline it? Do you make a note and think, oh, I could probably work that into a song later? Yeah, it's kind of the, it's really the, the, the popular headlines in science that are, you know, I'm not. Maybe a, that's why it works for me because I'm not a big deep diver, but I'm, I feel smarter I'm after really I listen to one either, of your songs. But yeah, like someone says, hey, check out this article about, you know, how baby birds practice their their songs in their sleep or something. And I'll, I'll think, oh, that's, you know, I used, I was also a big fan of, um, well, it's still going, this magazine called Cabinet, which uh -huh. kind of based on a theme, they would talk about kind of um, archaic scientific experiments from the Victorian era or something. That's the kind of stuff that would draw me in that, that has like a science-based but kind of a literary bent to it. One of the songs off of this new album is called Atomized, and I was watching it on YouTube, and there's a sort of quote from you beneath the video that says, 
it's not just about uh, society getting atomized, but it's that the self is being broken apart and being scattered. I'm wondering, was that your version of trying to work out, um, you know, the pandemic or our weird relationship with technology or just like the strange moment of life that we're in right now? I mean, it, all of that, you know, the, the first verse is talking about um, being sort of unsettled, like sort of shaken from your comfortable perch by that algorithm or, or whatever it is, just some the modern life kind of trying to disrupt you and divide you for profit, basically. Mm. And then uh, the, the chorus was, I, I happened to just have Beethoven's Seventh Symphony going in my head one day, and I was like, I wonder how that would work as a bridge uh, huh. or chorus to the song. And then I was thinking about, um, you know, uh, an issue that, that keeps coming up with me, like the self versus the group, or like, are, do we live in a society, or like, America's so confused about what individual freedom really means. And so there's that line about, um, is each of us an island or more like Finland? Um, <laughs> And then the the second verse is talking, it kind of brings it more to a personal level, which I often do. If it gets a little too, you know, abstract about technology or geopolitics, I'll make the next verse about like between two people. But yeah, the, the song was just kind of talking about, um, you know, from Yeats' second coming poem to Joan Didion's Slouching Toward Bethlehem essay. And then this is an attempt to sort of update that to the present with technology and social media. Um, okay, so we're going to hear a song. Uh, which song are we going to hear? I'm going to do Make a Picture. Okay, and this is off of the new album Inside Problems? Mm hmm All right, this is Andrew Bird here on Livewire. All the scowling faces All those furrowed brows All those burnout cases Make them take a bow Buy some smiling faces Come on and show us how Never mind the braces Love you anyhow Love you anyhow Working with the fatal flaw No, that's not the right line 
Listen to the cries of the wounded metropolis Dancing some tentahooks Listen to the cries of the pliable populace Giving us a dirty looks Giving us a dirty looks Dirty looks Now they're giving us a dirty looks Make a picture Make it snappy Make a picture Don't look so happy All the scowling faces All those furrowed brows All those burnout cases Make them take a bow I'll buy some smiling faces Come on and show us how Never mind the braces Love you anyhow Love you anyhow Love you anyhow Love you anyhow You will never sleep alone Love you anyhow You will never sleep alone Andrew Bird, right here on Livewire. That was incredible. Thank you. Well, Andrew Bird, thank you so much for uh, coming on Livewire. If you want to find out where Andrew's going to be on tour this summer, go to andrewbird.net, and you can also get the new album Inside Problems there. Andrew, thanks again. Yeah, good to see you again. All right, before we get out of here, a little preview of next week's episode. We are going to be celebrating Father's Day uh, and sharing some incredible and moving conversations that we have had with guests regarding their dads. Um, including filmmaker Kirsten Johnson. She made this documentary, Dick Johnson is Dead, as a means to sort of commemorate the life and, and legacy and also the, the journey with dementia that her actual father, Dick Johnson, went on. Um, it's a really incredible piece of filmmaking. We're also going to talk to comedian Chris Garcia. He pokes fun at his life choices by channeling his Cuban father. And he's also going to tell us about his podcast, Scattered, which is about his family. Then, Wilco's Jeff Tweedy, a father himself, is going to perform a song with his two sons. And as always, we are going to be looking to get your answer to our listener question. Elena, what are we asking the listeners for next week's episode? We want to know the most important thing that your father or any father figure that you have ever taught you. Nice. Mine is... Don't show up an hour and a half early to things because <laughs> so my dad just did while we were doing the show, he's texting me that he's somewhere we're supposed to be meeting in like an hour and a half. So he's on Walt Burbank time. That's right. That's my answer for next week. Hey, if you have a response to that, go ahead and hit us up on social media, Twitter or Facebook. We're at Livewire Radio and uh, give us your answer to that question. All right, that's going to do it for this episode of the show. A huge thanks to our guests, Cecily Wong and Andrew Bird. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Tim Harkins is our development and marketing director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Our assistant editor is Trey Hester. And our marketing manager is Paige Thomas. Woo! Welcome to the team. Welcome, Paige. Our house band is Ethan Fox Tucker, Sam Tucker, A.L. Alves, and A. Walker Spring, who also composes our music. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer. Our house sound is by D. Neil Blake. And Viviana Castillo-Serrano is our intern. 
Additional funding provided by the Oregon Arts Commission, a state agency funded by the state of Oregon and the National Endowment for the Arts. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank members Arvid Hokinson of Mercer Island, Washington, and Kathleen Kinder of Portland, Oregon. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review. Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of LiveWire read on the program itself. Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.